time we stop spreading fear and acknowledge some facts. This is not about freedom or personal choice. You know, you can't work anymore unless you do what I say. That's essentially what a vaccine passport is. Wear masks obviously is a violation of your personal rights, and so is being locked down. You've been patient. Your patience is wearing thin. Open society back up. Restore our freedoms. End this madness. G'day, I'm George Christensen, host of Conservative One Pandemic Unmasked, the podcast that's lifting the veil on COVID-19 to expose all that lies underneath. And we know one of the things that has lied underneath is uh, a whole host of removals of freedoms and liberties that we have come to expect as our innate rights. It's been unbelievable to see in Western democracies such as Australia, how easily it has been for governments acting on the advice of health bureaucrats to just strip us of freedoms. And so uh, this episode, we're going to talk to a retired judge, Stuart Lindsay, formerly of the Federal Circuit Court. Uh, Stuart has been a passionate and outspoken advocate for freedoms and rights, particularly as they've been removed under the guise of this pandemic. So it's with great pleasure that I welcome Stuart to the podcast. Thanks very much for joining us, Stuart. Oh, my pleasure. Nice, nice to meet you. Stuart, firstly, I've given a little bit of a bio. Can you please give your background in terms of uh, your legal qualifications, what you used to do um, before we get into the meat of this interview? Sure. Well, I was, I was at the bar here in Adelaide um, doing crime, family law, variety of matters. Uh, and I received an appointment to the Federal Circuit Court in 2004. I was there for 10 years. I retired then, not, I hasten to add, because I reached the age of 70. Life hasn't been kind. I'm actually much older than I look. Um, I look much older than I am, I should say. Um, but I left in 2014 really wanting to find a pathway out of the law. I had other enthusiasms and I didn't feel as if I was honouring my heritage in the way I was responding to what was going on around me, the dismantling of our most important institutions from the church downwards. Um, and so I thought uh, it was time uh, at, uh, what was it, the age of um, 50, 58, I guess, um, to strike out on a different path. But look, I went back to the bar. Um, there was money that had to be earned. And then, of course, in 2020, um, this, um, this COVID business arose and uh, it was plain to me that this was a civilizational crisis um, within a civilizational crisis, that the forces that had been gathering for some, well, some generations, but especially over the last 20 years, had um, taken this occasion to really um, to really make a strike against our institutions and against all of our core civilizational values. So, um, uh, so look, being uh, someone with some legal experience, some not inconsiderable legal experience, and with uh, some uh, connections within the legal fraternity uh, here in Adelaide, I thought it was my duty, frankly 
to step forward and examine the legal remedies that were available. Each state, as you would know, has its its own particular structure in relation to the way this um, tyranny, and that's not a word I use casually, in, in the relation to the way this tyranny has sought to be implemented. And of course, George, as you would know, that's a function of the fact that, that Mr. Morrison took took the Commonwealth out of the equation. Um, it was a Biosecurity Act in place by 2015. I believe it was the work of, of the Abbott government. You'll probably have more knowledge about that than me, but a, a, a pretty striking piece of legislation which, which um, balanced two imperatives, the imperative of protecting us from um, these kinds of uh, threats that were always a possibility, biological threats, but at the same time did so in a way that was consonant with our tradition of individual liberty and bodily autonomy and all mm -hmm. kinds of other precious common law freedoms. But surprisingly enough, in one sense, when that, surprisingly enough in one sense, when that, uh, when this happened in 2020, that was shelved. I wonder why, I asked rhetorically, I wonder whether it was because all of those constitutional protections that we might have availed ourselves of were kicked into touch. So and the only reason I mention that is it's it's by way of explanation or it's the excuse I make to myself for being so slow off the mark. Uh, we didn't get this judicial review initiative underway here in Adelaide till, till a couple of months ago. But look, there was a reason for that. It, and it's just what I've explained. The uh, with judicial review proceedings in each of the states, the fruits of victory can be so easily taken away by the government just papering over, filling up uh, the cracks that have been found in the way in which the various states of emergency have been implemented. But fortuitously in South Australia, because of the incompetence of and conceit of the Marshall Liberal government and his Attorney General, Ms. Chapman, um, that that's something that I think is less likely or became less likely in South Australia towards the end of this year and leading into an election in March of next year. Uh, our parliament's in chaos, George. I don't know whether you're aware of this. Um, uh, three uh, true conservatives in the Liberal Party crossed the floor. They elected a new speaker. The new speaker was was one of the very people Marshall was trying to kick out of the party. How sweet was that? Um, and that being the political situation in South Australia, it seemed to me that this was the opportune time to get a bona fide judicial review application in the Supreme Court of Foot. Uh, we've retained, in my view, the best counsel available. He's a young fellow who used to appear before me. He's now at now Queen's Counsel. Uh, a very good junior, a feisty Italian solicitor, uh, uh, instructing us all. And uh, win, lose or draw, these judicial review applications are relatively hard to get up on, but we're giving it our best shot. So, so tell us about this judicial review. What is the, the point of this judicial review that you're trying to apply for in South Australia? Well, the, the object of it, George, is um, it gets right to the heart of it. It seeks to firstly um, quash the declaration of emergency itself, although more specifically it seeks to quash the extensions of the declaration of emergency which have been made every month. It's the police commissioner here 
who's the repository of all of these delegated legislative powers. Um, and that's not the case in other states. Um, yeah. um, so the declaration, the extension of the declaration would be quashed if we were successful. And these wicked directions that have been the last phase of this very carefully planned strategy for, um, for um, mass vaccination, which is to isolate particular areas of employment, call them settings, and then to, to deprive people who've made their living, some of them all of their lives, uh, from this particular employment setting, be it teaching, the police, mm -hmm. aged care, nursing, uh, other areas of medicine, doctors themselves, mm -hmm. uh, all of the allied health professionals, to require them to be vaccinated with what is... Now, there's no argument about this. These no reasonable argument about it. These vaccines are almost wholly ineffective against the Delta strain. They're not needed against this Omicron strain. Um, so the idea would be to quash um, or the object. One of the objects of the exercise is to is to quash these particular directions that have been made. So mm -hmm. um, judicial review is an ancient remedy. It's it. Um, it's a power that's possessed by each of the Supreme Courts in the various states of Australia. It inhered in, in the Supreme Courts when they were established in the various states. It goes back to the 14th century. It started off as a, a remedy that the king took advantage of. He, want, he sent everyone out into the counties to make sure that the power he'd given to various uh, court officials, court as in royal court officials, wasn't being misused or or, or to check that if it was a power that was available, it was being used. And of course, over the centuries, as the power moved from the king uh, to, to, to parliament, as executive power moved to the cabinets of the parliaments, so the remedy has been one that ordinary citizens, and I must say I've been, I tell you quite sincerely, I've been humbled by this experience after 40 years in the law, uh, just to see the... Um, I've been astonished to just to consider uh, the the blessings of the system of the common law system we inherited, which is being traduced um, in recent generations. Just just think of it: four ordinary citizens um, have brought this application. One of two of them nurses, one of them a teacher, one of them a childcare worker, and they have brought the most powerful people in the state, the governor and the police commissioner, they've brought him, them, to court to answer their claim. If they hadn't turned up, the court would have brought them into court to answer it. What a magnificent system. Yeah. How, how, how much we've taken it for granted, um, like so many other of our, the institutions with which our heritage is blessed us. And I've, it's, it's been moving for me uh, to, to take these individual plaintiffs through this um, very humble people, very strong people, but to take them through this journey which, in which they're getting to experience the, the blessings and the rarity of this system that, that we enjoy. So, but to answer your question, ultimately the remedy would be the big one. We quash the declaration, uh, the emergency declaration itself and the extensions, and then we then quash these wicked directions that have thrown so many people out of work.
Mm-hmm. And so where, where is it at right now? The uh, It's obviously been accepted, uh, this judicial review, by the South Australian Supreme Court. Um, does it have to go through a series of different uh, hoops before it becomes official, or is it official right now? No, no, and, it's uh, been... It's, it's been filed, George, and um, yeah. the first step in it, and again, underlining, underscoring the, um, the, the power that resides in the people um, under our judicial system, the first step is that on our filing it, the, uh, the, the repositories of the power to whom it's directed, in this case, the police commissioner and the governor, have to produce to us, to these four individuals, have to produce to them all of the material upon which they relied uh, mm-hmm. in in making their decisions. So we get the chance to scrutinise everything they relied upon mm-hmm. in deciding that these extraordinary measures, extraordinarily invasive of our personal liberty, were proportionate and reasonable yeah. responses to a virus which everyone over the world can see now was no more potent than a mild to severe seasonal flu. So we'll look at those documents. That's it. We're actually, as this week, we're waiting on receiving them. We were promised, um, we were promised most of them this week, and then it'll proceed towards a hearing, perhaps before one judge, perhaps before a court of three. Um, it's, it's going to be a very interesting application. There will mm. be, um, more twists and turns than a chiropractor's convention before this matter's finished. <laughs> uh, that's yeah, I, what I've i promised them. Well, now, I, I've been surprised that actually to date there has been no significant or substantive uh, win, shall I say, for the pro-freedom cause in the courts here in Australia. So he's hoping that uh, the judicial review and SA uh, is, is, is the first mover. Uh, but... Um, it has always perplexed me why there hasn't been a win uh, as yet, because you are right, the proportionality argument, which is what um, I guess that those who have in- implemented all of these different uh, restrictions, whether they've been border closures, lockdowns, uh, mask mandates, uh, uh, you know, forced vaccination, workplace-based vaccination, the segregation that we're seeing across several states based on your medical status, all of it really must be proportional to the problem at hand. And you've outlined some very, very simple facts. I mean, this virus, according to uh, one of the top epidemiologists, Dr. John Ioannidis, this figure was published in nonetheless than the World Health Organization bulletin, said that uh, on a survey very, very early in the piece, before vaccines were a thing, uh, that they looked at different countries and they came up with an infection fatality rate of 0.27%, which sort of means, statistically speaking, that uh, if you catch COVID-19, you've got a 99.73% chance of surviving it. Mm. And that's across the board. That doesn't go into the, the healthier parts of the population and the younger yes. parts of the population. So then you talked about Delta, uh, uh, the waning efficacy of these vaccines, uh, the non-efficacy with Delta, the non-efficacy with Omicron. Um, I just wonder how on earth a court so far hasn't blown the whistle and just said, sorry, not proportional. Why is 
What? Why has the judicial system let us down so far? Look, um, I, I don't know that I'd, I'd blame the judicial system, George. The, the, and I've got to be frank here. Um, uh, first of all, um, the legal profession have probably been second only to the medical profession in their pusillanimous attitude towards resisting this pandemic. I mean, the medical profession will never recover uh, from the way they've rolled over to the, the various menaces that APRA have, have threatened them with. Mm. The medical profession has disgraced itself, but the legal profession hasn't been far behind, I have to say. I'm, I, apart from the reason I advanced at the beginning of our discussion, that, that it, it was fair enough to say, look, why, with, with all of the parliaments acting as one, with no real opposition in any of the state parliaments or in the Commonwealth Parliament, for that matter, with them all ad idem on all of the essentials of, uh, of what's what's being implemented here, it would be reasonable to say, well, why have a crack if it can be undone? But that's only a partial explanation. Um, so the passivity, the unwillingness of the legal profession to stand up uh, has been another factor. And look, I have to say um, uh, that last this year and last year, I. I don't know that the applications that have been made have been argued adroitly, if I may use that expression. Mm -hmm. I'm not criticising in any way the people who got them underway. There were several in New South Wales um, which uh, reached the Supreme Court. Well, two, two ended up in the Supreme Court. One ended up curiously before a... Uh, a, a federal court judge on a constitutional argument that was never going to go anywhere. Um, so with all due respect to these individual legal practitioners who stood up and said, let's have a crack, and no one else was doing it, I, I'm, I don't know that they, I think they had failure sewn into the way in which they were structured and argued. And that goes for some proceedings that were afoot in Tasmania uh, that's been a most unfortunate course they've taken. But on the positive side, since we filed, we um, we received some contact from a from a young practitioner in in the Northern Territory, Daniel Kelly, uh, and Daniel um, put the larger firms up there and the interstate firms that have branches in Darwin to shame. He organised with the assistance of um, some small businessmen in in Darwin, a, a, a judicial review application in relation to their um, the way in which they've sought to introduce these mandates. I don't I don't know whether you've looked at the at the Darwin model. It's just astonishing in its audacity and in its dis, in in the inbuilt discrimination in which it it essentially revolves around no one being able. Um, to be um, unvaccinated in the presence um, of a of a disadvantaged person, oh. and a disadvantaged person is every Aboriginal in the state by definition under this under this direction. Vulnerable. I'm sorry, that's the expression. A vulnerable person. Every Aboriginal in the state of in, in the Northern Territory has been deemed to be a vulnerable person. How patronising! Yeah, yeah. How utterly discriminatory, and that's the foundation upon which that particular structure is built. But Daniel's got himself an application 
underway. It's been before the court. It's coming back early in the new year. One started in Western Australia only this week. And once Daniel was underway, I understand there's some enterprising solicitors in Rockhampton who are having a crack. So, um, so hopefully um, we've been the model uh, or the uh, inspiration or the Philip for some other yeah. uh, practitioners to do the right thing. So, so let's go to some of the freedoms that have been removed and how on earth that has happened. I mean, for the average layperson, uh, they they didn't understand that government could have the power to shut people um, in their homes, to uh, to lock down, to shut down their stores or their businesses. Um, this is sort of extraordinary, at least in this generation, and probably has been for several generations. So how is it that governments have easily had these powers? Well, of course, part of our argument is that that they haven't and and there's a number of arguments that we're running one is a um an argument just on the construction of our emergency services act itself which which posits in my view uh, it's it's a very strong point and we'll see what the crown solicitor has to say about it but but this should really have been a situation that was managed by the parliament and had the governor declared a disaster, as distinct from a major emergency, this would have been taken out of the hands of the police commissioner. Now, that's important because whatever the governor does under the Emergency Management Act is reviewed by parliament. It's one thing for the citizens of a state to be told, we're going to mock your common law right of bodily integrity or your freedom of movement or your right to conduct your business in the way that you like it. It's, it's one thing to do that if your elected representatives have the ultimate say about whether that's good law or bad law. It's another thing all to do it. This is the peculiarity of South Australia's system, which is why it's so vulnerable to judicial review. It's another thing to give that power to a, uh, a policeman, a man who wears a policeman's hat, who's not accountable to parliament at all. Mm. Uh, the extension of the declaration has to be approved by the governor, but these directions are entirely in the hands of the police commissioner. It's an individual man, not elected man, uh, not not a member of a court. It's the re the legislature has seen fit to hand over to one man uh, these extraordinary powers, which are and the way in which he's exercised them has been completely inconsistent with all of the all of the all of the rights to which you've just um referred um so um that's so we've we've got the that that's one of the arguments the other arguments go to this question of proportionality and reasonableness which we talked about earlier this is where judicial review applications are always relatively ambitious george um oftentimes a court will say when it's asked to quash um a direction by someone whom the legislature has given such power, um, often they will say, well, that's not our role, uh, unless it's uh, something that is demonstrably something that wouldn't be done, um, couldn't be done reasonably or rationally by a repository of the power. It's not for us to say he, he or she should, should have done differently. But um, and we're arguing those grounds, we're, we're taking on that responsibility. That may involve factual disputes. 
We're hoping it does. We have um, uh, some world-class um, uh, medical professionals, uh, one in particular, a, a physician, an immunologist, and a vaccine manufacturer all in one. Uh, and we're happy to put our expertise or the expertise of the witnesses upon whom we'll rely against the expertise of the person, the police commissioner, keeps telling us he's been relying upon. Ms Spurrier, our chief medical officer. Ms Spurrier, who uh, you may mm. recall, I, I think this made Just world so. news. Yeah. I, I don't know whether you've heard of it, George. It made world news. I assume it's, it reached the eastern states as well. This is the lady who diagnosed a new strain very early on, a new strain of the virus that was transmitted either by pizza boxes or oh, yes. by the content of the boxes themselves. Seriously, I, this sounds like hyperbole, but but she took it upon herself, uh, a paediatrician who wasn't made a professor until after she got this gig as chief medical officer, she took it upon herself to diagnose this new mode of transmission. And on the strength of it, a million Adelaideans were locked in their homes. Think about that. Mm, businesses mm. were closed down never to reopen she's um, also the uh, one who uh, su suggested that people don't catch footballs at afl games and also that right. uh, i think i think she was the one who said that the qr code should be a permanent fixture on our landscape like hell let's say that judicial reviews come forward in south australia or the territory queensland everywhere and all of them fail that the courts of the land uphold what governments have done. Where to from there? Look, can I tell you, I've thought that through. If Let me just speak personally, if I may. If it does, then I'm off the chain, as it were. I've done my duty. Uh, I've done my best. I've stepped forward with the assistance of the wonderful people around me who are assisting and have been instructed to take advantage of the legal remedies that are available. If if we're deprived of remedies, uh, if we're deprived of remedies that that um, that ought to be made available in these extraordinary circumstances, then then clearly we're looking. Everyone must then look to remedies that are extrajudicial, extra-parliamentary, um, and we're getting into questions then of of the inevitability of rebellion in which whatever form that takes so here's this is the this is the state we're in a former judicial officer a very conservative person let me tell you not given to talking of rebellion but but what you posit if if there is a refusal on the part of the courts to utilize the the powers they have to remedy this misuse of executive power, uh, then where else are we left to go but to the barricades and to the streets? Yeah, yeah. And and, and I want to emphasise uh, no one here is advocating violence whatsoever. Uh, but the point would be that if the courts fail us, we no longer live in what we thought was a liberal democracy where we have innate and fundamental freedoms that are protected by law. We live in another system. And so the question is then, how do we pull this new system, this sort of 
woke mob democracy where executives rule and citizens are just going to do what they're told back to a system which has those common law protections. Uh, that's, I think, what the fundamental question is going to be if well, the courts fail us. Well, yes, look, I think you, you, you framed that uh, nicely there, if I may say so. Uh, it, what we're really saying is the, the courts are the last chance. Um, the, the courts are the last institution that are going to be put to the test, that are being put to the test. I have faith in the courts. I have faith in the integrity of our judicial system. It hasn't waned even as my faith in the integrity of other key institutions. We mentioned the church. I'd say the parliament with respect, George. Um, our schools, our military have been eviscerated by, um, the, uh, by the march of the left through our institutions now over two or three generations. But, but I've, I have faith in the courts. Mm. That's why, and I'm, what I'm doing, what I'm investing my time and energy in now, and as are so many other people with this judicial review, surely demonstrates that. So the question I was answering, of course, was your hypothetical one. Uh, and like you, of course, I wasn't suggesting a violent rebellion, uh, but, um, but if rebellion is the only course that's left, that's what will be taken. Mm. What, what else can we do? Yeah, well, su submit, I guess, and just uh, live in a different system. Uh, well, I'm not so, doing so, that. Uh, I, I uh, you don't strike I'm, me as someone who's going to do that either. I come I'm not, not going to do it either. Yeah. Uh, George, I, I come from a Scots-Irish background, and that's not that's not the way my father's taught me to behave. It's not the way my grandfather taught me to behave. That won't be happening as far as um, this particular part of Australia is concerned. So, Stuart, if this judicial review succeeds or uh, there's some other win in the courts, uh, a government could just simply decide that uh, it'll reverse what it's done and then re-engineer it in accordance with what the court has laid out. Uh, that's a possibility, isn't it? Uh, look, it is. Um, it, it depends upon the way in which the review is determined. Uh, if, if we succeed just on on legal arguments about the structure of the legislation and so forth, then presumably that can be relatively easily remedied, subject to the political situation in each of the states. Uh, but if it's if it's one that that's more foundationed upon um, upon looking at the evidence which the various authorities have relied upon, and it, it's it it, um, it must have. It, I, I say, I posit, it must have been flawed, skewed information, unbalanced information, providing one narrative and ignoring differential um, diagnoses of the situation. Um, if, it, if, it, if the review succeeds on such a ground, then that'll be much more difficult. That really would be a, a slap in the face to the courts. And one would hope that... Um, and of course, this is in a vacuum of publicity, of course, because none of the media, none of the formal media, the papers and the television stations uh, allow these issues to be properly ventilated. But but if the courts rejected a well-argued uh, case on the factual substratum of these directions and we succeeded, uh, then surely that would, surely that would incentivise the populace to, to, to 
demand of their political leaders that they they hearken unto the evidence that's been given in the court. I say that um, we've been disappointed in so many things over this journey, um, but, but I, I acknowledge what you're saying as a possibility, George, unfortunately. So Stuart, you've alluded several times during this interview to um, some sort of agenda being at play. Uh, and I'm talking about, you know, the, this is not just an Australian thing or a South Australian thing. This is a global thing, the entire response to this pandemic, particularly in the Western world. So uh, who are, in your view, the powers that be that are behind this agenda and to what end? Well, George, I don't obviously have uh, access to any more information than, than you or, or most of us do. But um, but the planning, uh, the planning was so well advanced by March 2020. All of the um, all of the signs, even down to the little arrows on the street, and the little dis distancing social distancing measures, they were all in preparation. Uh, in each country, in the West at least, the matter has been implemented by very well-prescribed phases. Uh, you just have to have a modicum of, of common sense or even of worldliness to know that this was, this was something that was, was well-planned. As to, we've all had access to, to books and, and information that speculate about that. Certainly, it seems to me the World Economic Forum, so populated as that organisation is with people who currently hold power in the various nations in the West or who have formerly held it, uh, all the Blairs of this world and Blair proteges like Jacinta Ardern, um, one, would take an in one would take an intelligent guess, wouldn't one? You'd even put money on it that somewhere near the heart of this darkness, the World Economic Forum uh, is, is pulling the strings. But I'm no more well-informed than anyone else is. And we're particularly disadvantaged, aren't we, in, over the last few years, because um, investigative journalists have decided to abolish themselves. Papers, <laughs> papers have decided to abolish investigative journalists, and investigative journalists have decided to take up sycophancy for a living. So, um, so that's, that, that's not entirely true, Stuart. They're actually, uh, they're doing a, a job in investigating. They're investigating the people that are doing their job and trying to call them out. That's <laughs> so now that now, you're right. Uh, I mean, as a former journalist myself, it's shocking. The mainstream media have just decided that whatever government agencies tell them has got to be taken as gospel. And if anyone speaks against it, they are to be treated just like they're speaking against the gospel, they're going to be treated as heretics. So uh, uh, it's it's very very sad to see that. Very very sad. Yes, if I mean if if we ever went back to constructing time capsules, you would hope that we could put into it a video record of these um, press conferences that are convened by the various chief medical officers in the states and the 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 infantile nature of the questioning that goes on uh, in, a, in a profession that formerly prided itself on its vigour. Um, what, what, what a shameful performance by, by uh, the profession of journalism it's been. Indeed.
Indeed. Well, look, thank you very much for joining us uh, to give your insights into uh, what's behind this pandemic and uh, particularly around uh, the the potential future for a fix to some of the uh, uh, the egregious removals of our liberties and freedoms in this country because I know that uh, many, many Australians are looking forward to some legal victory in the offing that could turn all of this around. Here's hoping that you guys lead the way in South Australia. Thank you very much once again, retired Judge Stuart Lindsay. Thank you, George. Conservative One Pandemic Unmasked is hosted by George Christensen, MP. You can find more episodes from this series at goodsource.news forward slash unmasked. This show is produced and published without censorship or paywall by the team at The Good Source, thanks to The Good Source supporters. If you'd like to be part of the solution by helping us produce more truthful content like this each month, head to goodsource.news and click on the support button. Make sure to follow George Christensen on Telegram, Getter, Gab, Parler, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. You can also help us beat the algorithms by giving us five stars and encouraging comments in Apple Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.